0: Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, the rock who followed Israel in the wilderness. Father, we come because you have invited us to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might find grace to help in time of need. And it seems, Lord, that every day is a time of need. We know as we come to the end of this century and of this millennia, millennium, it seems that The conditions in the world are deteriorating rapidly but we know that you are in control of it all this is our father's world you have a plan which you are carrying out and i pray that we will walk in faith knowing that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom and to contribute to that plan lord i pray that this hour would be part of that plan that your spirit will be here in power that your word will be Uh, driven deeply into our hearts, not just by knowledge, but but through action it will be expressed to the world, that we will truly be the living Word of God expressed through our daily lives. Father, I pray that you will bless in every class this morning and in the service that is occurring at this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read a passage to you. From the 17th chapter of Exodus because it is a parallel to the chapter that we're studying in Numbers. Exodus chapter 17 beginning at verse 1, the first seven verses. This takes us back, this takes us back to the beginning of the second year approximately of the Exodus and we read this, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin According to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said give us water that we may drink and Moses said to them Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said why now have you brought us up? From Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so Moses cried out to the Lord saying What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord not among us or among us or not? They named it, he named it testing, temptation, and he named it contention. Now, this occurred 38 years before the event that we're studying right now in the 20th chapter of Numbers. And if we turn there, let's notice the parallel here. The 20th chapter of Numbers paralleled to the 17th chapter of Exodus. This is a different generation. The generation that was 20 years and older at that time died off in the wilderness. This event which occurs or is described here in the 20th chapter of Numbers is at the end of the wilderness wandering. It's a different generation. But are the people different? Numbers 20 verse 1, then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there and there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Let me just stop there for a minute. That is truth. I mean, what they're speaking there is truth. We have been in the wilderness of Zin. And there are no figs and pomegranates and grapes there. There's just rocks and dirt. I mean, it's a pretty bleak place. Like I mentioned before, it's sort of like a background for a B-Western, you know. (laughs) That's about what it's like there. And and yet, you notice what they say there. They say, why have you brought the congregation or the Lord's assembly out here to die? (laughs) It's as if Moses is more powerful than God. Why did you do this, Moses? Why did you bring God's people out here to kill them off? Verse six, then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod which you and your brother Aaron, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth for them out of the rock, water forth for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, "Listen now, you rebels! Shall we bring forth water out of the rock, out of for you out of this rock?" Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their d- beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, "Because you have not believed me." to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Mirabah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. As you'll notice, there's a very strong parallel between these two passages. The problem is the same. The people are different. God is the same. Moses is the same. Thirty-eight years have separated the two incidences. But one of the things we discover as we study this passage is that Moses and Aaron again, again, faithfully, Moses and Aaron, when the problem comes, what do they do? Do they send men out scouting around looking for water? Do they try to hire a water witch to go around, you know, and dip his little stick someplace? Do they call in a drilling company? What do they do? The very first Thing they do is to intercede for Israel. They witness the problem as too big for them. They go immediately to the one for whom it is not too big. That is God. Moses and Aaron, in spite of their frailties, in spite of their weaknesses, and of course their weaknesses and frailties just prove that they are very much as we are. They are wonderful examples to us in that whenever a crisis comes up, a crisis comes up, or a naughty problem, they take it to the Lord first. And the emphasis is on first, not after they have tried every other method to solve the problem, to deal with the crisis. Now, I think for most of us, we'd be honest in saying that we have a tendency sometimes to flounder around when we face a problem or a crisis, because we often try to deal with the problem in our own strength first, in our own wisdom alone. Why not? That is the American way. The American way is to be independent and self-sufficient. We can do it. After all, we pioneered the West. We we conquered a a virgin continent. We can do it. it. It's almost as if we believe Lenin's taunt when he said that Christianity is a crutch. The implication, of course, being that only the weak turn to God, the strong do it themselves. The strong don't need God. But, of course, in reality, it isn't our strength, our proven strength, that keeps us from turning to God first. It's our pride, right? Pride goeth before a fall. Pride goeth before destruction. Pride is, is really a root to much of the failure in our lives. Because we don't want to admit to ourselves, we don't want to admit to God, we don't want to admit to each other that we can't handle the problem that it's too big for us. Now, in the world, the problem is, hang- is handled by just drowning their sorrows in alcohol. You know, if you're, if you're nine feet under in booze, why the problem doesn't bother you at all? Well. At least I'm told that that's true. But by example and by command, the Lord tells us, He instructs us to come to Him first because he understands and because he cares and because he's more than able. We sing that song, right? He is able, more than able. Well, is he? Do we really believe that? Let me turn to a familiar passage in the seventh chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 7. It's a passage that's so often quoted when we uh, hear messages on prayer or do a study on prayer. Matthew 7, 7. and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you, when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? This is God's promise. He will give those things which are good to those who ask Him. Of course, as you do your study in prayer, you know it means that we ask in faith, that that we ask uh, because it is the will of God, But, of course, what we have to understand is, it is God who defines good, not we who define good. I mean, I might say, it is good, Lord, that I have a brand new car. And not only that, two brand new cars and a nice big garage to put it in, which means a nice big house. You know, I might say those are all good, but God might not think that that's a good for me. Not that that's bad in general, but it might not be good for me in this situation. And so, when we ask in faith, believing, God hears and answers our prayer, but it doesn't always come in the way we think it ought to come. Now, the Israelites here, they're, they're complaining about the fact that there's no water. How did they want that water, you know? Did they want a thunderstorm to come? Did they hope that there would be a big lake there? No, that isn't how God will supply the need. They have a history of knowing how God supplies the need, though, because they had As we read in Exodus, a similar situation had happened, and God had provided them water from a rock in the desert. In the 8th verse of this chapter in Numbers, we read that God gave very explicit directions to Moses as to how to deal with this crisis. God, you'll notice, does not say, Moses, stand aside, I'm going to torch them all. Now, God doesn't say that because God has promised that that would be the generation that would enter the land. He had said, I'm going to lead them in and they will conquer the land. The other generation will die out because they refused to go when they were at Kadesh before. So this generation will go in. So God isn't going to say that. But Moses, we're told here, was to take his rod, which was the symbol of his authority under God. It wasn't just any old stick by which he prodded sheep along. In this instance, it was the symbol of his authority under God, as God's spokesman, as God's prophet in this situation. And then he with Aaron was to assemble the people before the rock. Now, the question is, what rock is God referring to here? It doesn't just say a rock. It says the rock. Assemble the people before the rock. Now. Apparently, where they were at Kadesh, there was a natural spring that sometimes flowed. Very possibly uh, a spring that was perennial or maybe only intermittent, we don't know. It's possible that it was not flowing at this time because it was a seasonal spring and it wasn't the season for it to flow, or that there was a drought, if you can imagine a drought in the desert, and, uh, and, and the water wasn't flowing as it normally did from this rock. We aren't told. We're not even told if it was specifically a spring. I'm just saying since it's referring to the rock, it must have been a rock that they knew something about. So the natural causes, the natural reasons here, we can't understand, we can't really probe them very deeply, but the divine purpose is very clear here, and that's what's important. And the divine purpose was to glorify God in the eyes of all of Israel. They were to see God through Moses work a miracle that would, could be undeniable. They couldn't say, well, you know, Moses went over and tapped the rock and, he, you know, caused a little split in it, and the natural pool that was in there flowed out. No, there, there would be any, no way that it could be explained away because Moses was supposed to stand on this very dry rock and simply say, in the name of the Lord, water come forth, and water would come forth. It was to glorify God. The, the purpose was to demonstrate yet another time to this people God's love and His power and His ability to care for them no matter what the circumstances were. I mean, they were in the desert with no water. They couldn't call in a tanker. God would provide even when everything seemed to be absolutely against them. Now, this is a powerful truth we need to know. Because sometimes we feel, even as, as Gwen and I were talking before the class this morning, you, you know, sometimes you feel like you're smack against the wall. You know? Plastered against the wall and, and there's nowhere to turn. But, but that's not a difficult problem for God. You know? There is no problem too difficult for Him. And, and we have to view God's promises in the larger context. You and and me, just as Israel right there, they were concerned about the immediate need. They were thirsty and they wanted water now. But as we go on through this passage, we're going to see that God was concerned about a greater truth, a much greater truth than whether they had a cup of water right now to assuage their their thirst. And, And that's what God is after in every situation. He's got a bigger truth for us to understand than the immediate answer to our problem. And that's hard for us to understand when we're in it. It's easier for someone else who's outside it to look at it and say, you know what God's trying to teach you, (laughs) you know? You may not know what God's trying to teach this person, but, but God is trying to teach us all individually and collectively through our individual and collective problems. And one of the things God is teaching us is that the church is, as we've heard so many times, not made up of a bunch of individual units that go around functioning on their own, not supposed to anyway, but we're supposed to function together as a body. And if one part hurts, we're all supposed to hurt with that. And, you know, give aid as the body sends aid to a wound. So, so we are to try to aid one another, at least through prayer, the very least, which is a big deal, of course. Prayer is a major issue. Moses was to simply speak to the rock. I believe, even though it doesn't say so, he was to speak to the rock in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord God Almighty, and by His authority I command water to come out of this rock. And the spring would flow with abundant water. It would be an undeniable miracle of God. Now. As I said, there is a deeper truth behind this than providing f- flesh and, I mean, physical water. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. You probably are well aware of the fact that there is right now, there has been going on now for several years, a, a seminar called the Jesus Seminar in which these, quote, scholars, have been studying particularly the sayings of Christ and voting on whether they were really the sayings of Christ or not. And, you know, you've heard the jokes about the colored pebbles they were using on, yes it is, maybe it is, might be, no it's not, you know, kind of deal. And uh, they're out now trying to propagate this. I mean, they're, they've done their thing, now they're going out trying to spread the Word and get people to realize that this may not be the Word of God and these may not be things Jesus ever said. But you know, when you read passages like the one I'm going to read here, you have to understand that Where would Paul get this? Out of the clear blue sky, you know, sit down one day and think, well, you know, when when that rock and that was really was Jesus. No, it had to come from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God spoke through Paul and gave him the truth that we find here. And we have got to believe that's true from the very first chapter of Genesis through the 22nd chapter of Revelation. That although men were used, yes, to write the words, and men decided through time what is the canon and what is not the canon, they didn't do it out of their own intelligence. But it was guided by the Spirit of God. If God is able to inspire people to write the Word, He can certainly protect His Word. He can certainly see to it that it is transferred from one generation to the next, truthfully, and that we have the true Word of God right here. We don't have to listen to a bunch of people who are educated beyond their intelligence trying to tell us what is God's Word and what is not. Just because they have degrees from seminaries doesn't mean that they are smarter or better under, they have better understanding of the Word of God than you or I do. We don't have to beat ourselves around saying, well, we're just a bunch of simpletons because we believe this to be literally true. We live in a world that's going to hell with, with no hope because they have rejected the foundation of the Word of God. A- as you know, we live in a relativistic age. We're, we're having uh, faculty staff meetings in a couple of weeks and we've we'll, and been asked to read a particular book. To, there'll be a basis of a discussion. A- and the book is all about the fact that we live in an age where students are being taught that there is no absolute value, that, there, that all facts are to be value free. and and that you are not to attach any particular set of values to any particular set of facts. And therefore, we all kind of float around as individual entities and and doing whatever, you know, the Scripture talks about that in Joshua, and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Well, good, good. I mean, that is just wonderful. I've mentioned, I may have mentioned this before, but years ago, when two of our youngest grandchildren were living with us, we used to read, I used to read to them a set of books called I forget what they're called, but anyway, they're the Maxian mini stories. If any of you had any contact with them, but anyway, in one of the stories, this is sort of the issue. And one of the kids, I don't remember which one, is complaining about the fact that there's all these rules, you know, you have to go by rules. And so the story was about well, what would life be if there weren't any rules? It would be very short for one thing. You know? No stoplights, no stop signs, no speed limits, and no insurance, no laws, no policemen. You know, just everybody did what is well, you know how long most of us would last in a world like that, you know. Might makes right, uh, he with the biggest gun wins, you know, that kind of thing. That's not how it is. And, and if you push this value-free, uh, relativistic age uh, to its logical conclusion, that's what you have. And if anybody believed that, what you'd end up with is a world that couldn't possibly exist today. So, obviously, there has to have been order. There has to have been purpose in all of this. This world was purposely made, and we are purposefully here. (laughs) And it's not random act of some, you know, blind uh, cosmic force. And so, as we read this passage, we see that the God of the universe who made it all, who has purposed it all, has spoken through Paul to give insight into an event which transpired 1,500 years before Paul lived. Paul says this in the first verse, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud. Now, this, this is a uh, symbolic statement in, in that Moses becomes a Christ-like figure here, symbolically, and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. FOR THEY WERE DRINKING FROM A SPIRITUAL ROCK WHICH FOLLOWED THEM, AND THE ROCK WAS CHRISTOS, CHRIST, MESSIAH. THEY DIDN'T KNOW IT, OF COURSE, BECAUSE THE DOCTRINE OF THE MESSIAH HAD ONLY BEEN VERY OBLIQUELY TAUGHT BEFORE THIS TIME. I MEAN, MOSES HAD BEEN INSPIRED BY GOD TO WRITE GENESIS chapter 3, VERSE 15, AS YOU KNOW, BUT, but, but THERE IS VERY LITTLE INFERENCE OF A MESSIAH UP, up TO THAT TIME. So they didn't know that it was the Messiah. They didn't know it was Christ that was there in the wilderness with them and that he was the real rock. And it is the spiritual water that was the important water here. These people were concerned about physical water and God would provide them physical water from a physical rock. You know, know the life of Jesus. When Jesus found a need, he would meet that physical need. But his purpose was not in meeting physical needs. That purpose, uh, that, that expression of, of love in meeting that physical need was simply to demonstrate his compassion so that people would understand the deeper meaning of the purpose for his being here. This physical rock from which the water came forth in the wilderness there at Kadesh was symbolic of the spiritual rock, Christ, from which would come spiritual water water that would spring up in them unto eternal life. God the Son, as as well as God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, were with Israel in the wilderness. The triune God existed then, as He does now, because He is eternal, and He was with Israel. The physical water, of course, is essential for physical life. But the spiritual water is far more important because it springs up into everlasting life. And one of the hardest parts, to, to, points to get across to people today, particularly young people, is the fact that this life is short. <laughs> Just like that, it's gone. Therefore, what we do for eternal life is what's important. And if we have to live this life impoverished, it isn't important compared to losing eternal life. And I keep thinking about these people, like these Jesus seminar people who are going around saying, you know, that Jesus probably didn't even say that. In fact, they quote in this article in Christianity Today from a United Methodist woman pastor who says, well, because of this seminar now, I now do not teach the Lord's Prayer as being the Lord's Prayer, but simply as a prayer that the church has historically prayed because they have ruled that Jesus probably did not teach the Lord's Prayer. I'm glad they're so intelligent and, you know, that they know so much. I mean, the church has believed this for 2,000 years, and then these people come along at the end of, uh, you know, 20 centuries, and they say, well, by the way, what you believed all along, Jesus didn't really say. Oh, really? Glad you really know that. And, and almost all of this is, is the product of this. Is, this is getting uh, into a little historical material here. but. This is largely, this this kind of thinking is the product of what flowered in the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was the period of time when this nation was born, you know, the late 18th century. And the Enlightenment was the time when, when no longer was God the measure of all things, but now man became the measure of all things. You change from the age of faith to the age of human reason. Now, human reason has good points to it. But when human reason decides that man is the measure of all things, we measure everything by human understanding rather than by divine revelation, then we've suddenly been derailed. And and that Enlightenment thinking led directly to the thinking of the German theologians of the 19th century, which decided that, um, you know, for example, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, weren't actually written by Moses, but they were written, you know, the J, D, P, Q, X, Y, Z, anyway, these different... The Wellhausen theory, that uh, you may not have ever heard of it, but don't bother studying it. <laughs> but this whole idea that certain parts of the scripture came from certain writings that were later by some unknown person kind of welded together to create the Pentateuch. And that Moses didn't really write it or some other thing, you know. And, and this whole process of taking the word of God apart. Well, there, there was a man who lived and I mean, this is nothing new. What the Jesus Seminar is trying to do is not anything new. As, as one professor from, uh, oh, where it was it? Bethel College or one of those said, uh, he said, "These guys aren't doing anything. This is just plain old liberalism. The same thing has been going on for a long time now. But back in the third century, there was a man by the name of Martian, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He may have come from Mars for, for all I know. But, <laughs> but he basically went through the Bible and clipped out everything that he didn't like in the New Testament, which was anything that smacked of Jewish thought, anything that smacked of Jewish thought, he cut it out and only wondered what was Greek. Well, you know, the hard part about that was that Jesus was a Jew. And and Jesus was not educated in the Greek gymnasium. Uh, He was educated in the Jewish uh, yeshiva. And and so you basically have to take everything Jesus said and throw it out, And, and most of what Paul says leave a little bit of what, in fact, about all he had left of the Gospels was Luke, you know, and even parts of Luke were cut out. It's really, you know, to me, it's amazing to think that somebody could sit there and say, I don't like this, clip, 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 throw it out. I don't like this, clip, 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 throw it out. And just, I'm going to like what's left. You know, the big ats and things like this that don't have any theology. in them. It's, it's this arrogance that's killing. Pride, again. Pride is, is the big issue. But, Talking about this water springing up into eternal life, you know the passage in John where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well of Sychar, John chapter 4. Let's just look at this because the truth that Jesus is giving to her is the truth that Israel needed to know in the wilderness. That yes, physical water would flow from this rock, but there is so much more important water that you need to have. You're going to conquer this land. You're going to go into Canaan. And if you don't have this this water of life springing up within you, you're going to fail to establish the kingdom of God as he wants it established. So let's look at this beginning at verse 5. So he, that is Jesus, came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And by the way, Jacob's well is still there. You can sit on the very... Stones that Jesus probably sat on. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. I'm sure he said, please. (laughs) For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans." Now, John included that. I mean, any Jew reading this would know exactly what the problem was, but John knew others would be reading this that were of Gentile persuasion, because John didn't write this until long after probably he was no longer even in the Holy Land. He was up in uh, Turkey. And so, he knew people would read this, wouldn't understand that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, and the history of that, of course, is, is very interesting. It goes all the way back to the days of the invasion of of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and the carrying off of people and the bringing in of non-Jewish people to intermarry with the local Jews and, and creating a hybrid race, which became known as the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered her, answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of, the, of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life." And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in the the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and is the message that God was attempting to teach Israel there at Kadesh. The the important truth was not, the important need was, was not whether they had physical water but whether they believed and trusted in the living God who was going to take them into the promised land. Now, you and I are constantly burdened with our physical needs and our physical problems, and they are not to be denied, and God meets those needs. He gave them the physical water they needed. But He wants us through it all to discover that He is able, more than able, to not only deliver you physically, but to deliver you spiritually. to to carry us on into his kingdom. And the the truth is that he doesn't want us to look at life in a bifurcated way. To say, I'm living this physical life now. I'm just going to do the best I can. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. And and so I'm just going to kind of do the best I can. And then someday in the sweet by and by, it'll be okay. He wants us to bring the sweet by and by here. (laughs) Now and to realize we are already part of the Kingdom of God. We are already in Heaven with Him, as it were, because that is an absolute promise. And He is here. When when you read about the heavenly Jerusalem, we're told that there is no need for light because Jesus, God, is there. And He is a light to all the city. He is a light to the world. He is a light to your life. He is a light to my life. And we're supposed to sit here and glow Not with one watt, but with a hundred watts or whatever, you know. And that's the living water coming forth. If through our difficulties we learn to trust him more, to believe him more, to know that although the voices of the world cry out that what you believe is irrelevant, it doesn't apply, you've got a crutch, uh, God isn't real, you're leaning on a book that was made by humans, uh, the world's going to keep telling you that. But deep down inside, if that well of water is springing up, you're saying, cry out what you will. I know it isn't true. This is the Word of God and He's real and He's here. God is here and He's not silent, as Schaefer said, Francis Schaefer, in his book. And that's the truth that we need to know in every situation we face, whether it be emotional, whether it be physical, whether it be financial, whether it be within our family, whatever the crisis is. And and I know all of you have been through, are in, or are yet facing, unknown to you, situations that seem to be insoluble. But God has the answer. He is the answer. And He wants us to keep flowing with that water in the midst of it all. Because you don't know whose life you will touch as you trust in God through the crisis. One of the key points of of the story in Numbers and in John chapter 4 is that if we become so taken up with worldly pursuits that we neglect what is eternal, we will lose it all. We will lose the the shalom of God, the peace of God. What is more important in this life than, than peace in our souls in the midst of it all? What is more important? A million dollars? What does a million dollars do? You know, a million dollars can't keep us alive. Uh, a million dollars can't really give you know, as they all, all, often say, you can't buy happiness. Well, you know, that may be a trite phrase, but it's true. I mean, there are people who are billionaires who would give it all if they could just have peace <coughs> in their souls, just have peace in their souls. And you and I don't have to give anything to have it, except to believe it. And God gives it in the midst of the desert, with no water seeming to be around. God provides. If we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all these things will be added to us. And within the context of that passage in Matthew is a promise of physical things as well as spiritual. He will supply us with whatever we actually need. Not always what we may want, but with what we actually need. Now, we discover in the 20th chapter of Numbers that Moses took the rod as commanded. He assembled the people before the rock as commanded. However, after following God's command to the letter, he seriously deviated from the word of God. And what is described in that 20th chapter, verses 10 and 11, was not intended to make Moses look bad or to provide a basis for rationalization. It is there as a warning. It's there as a warning that even the most godly persons can fail if they do not obey the word of God explicitly. As you have probably read in the humor lines that I have, God did not give us the 10 suggestions He gave us the Ten Commandments. God is not like many of our modern counselors today who kind of try to talk us into doing things and say, well, if you do this, maybe this would be good. Maybe if you do that, God knows exactly what to do and he tells us what to do. And if we do something else, (laughs) it is to our own detriment. It never is going to be helpful. Even the most spiritual leaders, can sin greatly and publicly if they yield to their pride. And we have seen this happen so often in just the past several decades, haven't we? No one is immune. Who can you think of in the history of of the working of God on earth as greater than Moses, other than Jesus Christ himself, you know? And yet he fails in such a miserable way. God will share his glory with no one. Why? Is it because God is such an egomaniac that he can't stand the idea of anybody else having any glory? No. It's because for anyone else to take glory, it's a lie. It is not the truth. Because only God has glory. He is the glory. And and to diminish his glory weakens the church. I mean, look at the mainline churches of America today where God's glory has been diminished. No longer is He the sovereign God who cares for us individually, whose word is true. He is sort of a loving force up there who doesn't really care whether you obey the commandments or not because He'll give you a second chance, you know, before, before you go to hell. In fact, there isn't any hell in, in many people's opinion today. If God's glory Is usurped by a man then people will trust in that person think about it when people seem to demonstrate unnatural power they attract people to them and people begin to put them on a pedestal and consider them to be exalted beings of some sort people will trust in that person of which the scripture says There dwells no good thing. You know, we think about this for a minute. In no human being dwells any good thing. Goodness comes only from God and God imparts goodness to us by his grace. It is not from within us that goodness comes. And this is part of the problem with the concept of a pope or a patriarch or some other charismatic leader to whom people ascribe divine powers and attributes. There is salvation in God alone. The best effort of any man cannot save anyone. As I was thinking about this, an article I just read from Christianity Today came to mind. Now, let me just read a little bit of this article to you. This is from the most recent Christianity Today uh, magazine. It's called, the is called Church of, of the Martyrs. And this is what the writer says. Nearly every Wednesday evening, Anba the Third. The 117th Pope of Alexandria and Patriarch of the See of St. Mark of Egypt conducts one of the Middle East's largest Christian Bible studies for about 5,000 Orthodox followers who crowd into St. Mark's, the ornate Coptic Cathedral near the center of Cairo. Speaking of one such session held this past spring, the article says, After the two-hour session, the 70-year-old patriarch, 74-year-old patriarch, Gathered his flowing black robes and processed out the side door with more than a dozen bishops in his wake. The crowd then surged forward, expressing deep affection for Shinoda by touching anything he had touched and then kissing their own hands. Oh, he touched this. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's one thing to have deep affection for a man who's leading a church in the midst of a A difficult world I wouldn't I wouldn't want to try to lead a Christian church in the middle of Cairo Egypt but in this is something beyond just defection for the man there is exaltation of the man there is belief that somehow this man by coming in contact with him you will receive some kind of spiritual goodness by having had contact with him and same idea of kissing the toe of the Pope or anybody else you know it's that same idea I mean that's what is so gross about it. It's not that a church can't have a leader who is strong and powerful and and all of this, but it's what we, what kind of exaltation we, we accredit to that person. God will accept no such sharing of His glory. If He wouldn't with Moses, He certainly isn't going to do it with a John Paul or a Shinoda who couldn't possibly hold a candle to Moses, no matter how saintly they may appear. And the same is true within Protestant circles, where we have some people who go around, you know, banging people and they fly in the air and fall over and all these things happen. And what happens? They're exalted. People think of this person before they even think of God. I can remember years and years ago when people were saying, we've got to go. It'll all happen to me if I can just get into a service with uh, Catherine Coleman. Now, Catherine Coleman was Uh, May have been a wonderful woman, and and God may have used her in many ways, but there were people who put her in the place of God. That is intolerable to God. And what we're talking about here in the life of Moses and, and his failure here is not the act, but the attitude behind the act. Moses' sin was not in striking the rock. Bang, bang, when God said, speak to it. His sin was not hitting it rather than speaking to it. There was, this was merely a secondary manifestation of his disobedience. His basic sin was in usurping God's authority because we read in that statement that Moses said, shall we bring forth water from this rock for you? And he didn't mean God and me. He meant Aaron and me, shall we bring forth water from this rock for you and God Instantly said, Moses, you're not going into the promised land because you did not glorify me in the eyes of these people. He had been told to hit the rock the first time back in Exodus 17, and now he was to speak to it. I mean, that's not the big issue here. The big issue was Moses' attitude. Psalm 106, verse 32. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account, because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips." Moses had a reason for his actions and attitudes, but he had no excuse. You and I have a reason for things we do that are not right, but we have no excuse. There's the difference. I may discipline my child with anger and hurt my child for a reason because the child with disobedience will disobedience, but have no excuse for harming a child in wrath. God held him accountable because Moses, of all people, knew better. I mean, who could have had more reason to believe God than Moses? He had encountered God at the burning bush and God had spoken to him right out of a burning bush and he'd stood in awe at this bush and God had taken him to lead Israel out of Egypt and and miracles had been performed. The river turned bloody red and and all the eldest sons of of the Egyptians died. I I mean, he was wielding immense power through God and he had stood in God's presence on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't even imagine that. Standing top of a mountain, and God is physically there. He could sense him. He could hear him. He could see whatever he saw in the cloud. And and he was, I don't think he was even hungry or thirsty the whole 40 days. He was so enraptured. And, of course, we read in Exodus 34 that, He said, show me thy glory. And God put him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand, and his glory passed by. I mean, who of all people had any excuse for this? Certainly not Moses. And in in the 12th verse of this 20th chapter, God clearly spelled out his sin. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me, notice, it's a sin of unbelief to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. One of the strongest truths of scripture is that we, that the, the church in America today is so far afield when it deals with God as if it's all going to be okay no matter what. Live like you like. It's going to be okay because God is the great grandfather figure up there and he's going to just understand and say it's okay. Well, that is so far from the truth. It's not that we've got to become some kind of perfect little robots because we know we can't do that. But we must believe, trust, and obey. We've got to do that. And, And Moses had every reason to do that. But Moses, I mean, Moses had accused the people of being rebels. And what does he do? turns right around and rebels against God. I mean, hypocrisy is printed all over this man at this juncture. And of course, as an accomplice to the act, Aaron partakes in the punishment. He will not go in to the promised land either. You might say, "But, but, but it was Moses. But Aaron could have said, dummy, I'm the high priest here. That's not what God said. He didn't. He was his older brother. He was the high priest. He went along with it and shared in the punishment. Now, oh, it's too late, but um, I want to also emphasize that the grace of God comes forth in the midst of this all. I mean, God is never up there going, wham, and then walking off. God is always there by grace to minister to his people. He will say, this is what you have done. This is the result, but I am here to be with you through it all and to minister to you and through you because what happens? Water comes forth from the rock. Now, is that the grace of God or what? If you were God, would you say, Moses, you jerk? Water will never come from that rock. He did it all wrong, but water flowed. You and I may mess it all up, but God will not fail to administer his grace in the midst of it all. So the point is, of course, not that we say, oh, well, even if I blow it, God will do his thing. No, because Moses will pay an awful price. And the church pays an awful price when it fails to walk in obedience. Well, we'll, we'll look at uh, that specifically next week and then move on to the problems that Israel have, will have in attempting to get to the place to invade Canaan.